0: Welcome to Southern Lawyer, where we bring you real stories from real lawyers. I'm Kimberly Peyton Jones, and today we're talking with my good friend Daryl Cohen. Daryl is a practicing attorney out of Atlanta. He specializes in entertainment and criminal law, and more importantly, Daryl is a wonderful person. In fact, before we start the interview, I want to share a brief story about Daryl. I was connected with Daryl through a mutual friend, Randy Kessler. And I needed some legal advice from Daryl. And I went up to his office and his office was super, so super nice. I mean, I've been in some nice places, but this office was so nice. And I got the intake sheet and I was filling it out. And when I saw his hourly rate, I thought, I don't know if I'm in the right place. But I went into his office. We sat down and spoke and he said, hey, you're a friend of a friend. I'm not charging you for this. I'm just giving you. My time and advice, which I greatly appreciate it. And from that, we developed a wonderful friendship. And I am just so thrilled to have him on today. So, with that, let us welcome Daryl Cohen. Daryl?
1: I'm here.
2: Great. How are you today?
1: I am so sorry. I was, that conference call was supposed to be 30 minutes max, and it was an hour.
2: Oh, no problem. I understand how it goes. Well, it's thank you good. for talking to me today. How's everything been? I haven't spoken to you in quite a bit.
1: I miss seeing you. Just doing what I do best or what I do worse. Just doing what I do.
2: <laughs> well, that is definitely good to hear. So today I wanted to record for Southern Lawyer. I'm just going to ask you some general questions about yourself, about your practice, and that should be it for the most part.
1: Okay. I'm here. i got as much or as little time as you want.
2: Okay, perfect. So, Daryl, tell me, where are you from originally?
1: You caught me putting in some chocolate medley in my mouth. <laughs> I was born in Chicago, moved here when I was two without my knowledge or consent, <laughs> and then I stayed here until after law school, moved to Miami, stayed there for a couple of years and came back, and here I am.
2: So, what took you to Miami.
1: I could be a smart ass and say a plane, but it wasn't. It was my car. (laughs) The pass rate in Georgia on the Georgia bar at the time was extraordinarily low. And so I chose to go to Florida where the pass rate was high. So I took that bar, passed it, took the bar in Georgia, passed it, and then moved back here shortly thereafter.
2: Okay. So did you go straight to law school out of college, or did you do anything else before you decided to go to law school?
1: No, I went straight out of college because I wasn't mature enough to take time off and then go back. I knew I needed to keep it right where it was.
2: No, I understand that, too. I knew if I took time off, I probably wouldn't have gone back. So I know that you acted for a while. How did that come about?
1: Well, in high school, I had a nice part in a play, our senior play, and that was pretty much it until I went to Miami and a clerk in the traffic division of municipal court, said I should model. And I Mm -hmm. kind of chuckled and said, thank you very much, but no. Then after several months, she said the same thing, and I said, okay, I need the money, because I wasn't making much. Shot a composite and then moved back to Atlanta, went with a couple of agencies, and had several auditions, and most of the auditions said, thank you very much, don't call us, we'll call you, and of course, I never got called, and then I got an extra part on a Wrigley's gum commercial that ultimately was upgraded to a principal, and I made a lot of money and had a lot of fun, so I started doing commercials, did a few, Old Spice and a couple others, and then I had a couple of bit parts and some productions, and we ended up doing something called the Catlins, which was a... Strictly Turner production. It was a soap opera about the old South. And so I did that for a while and had a great time.
2: So were you still practicing while you were doing the commercials and doing the Catlin?
1: Oh, absolutely. I would, Catlin's, we were on a very low budget. So we would have to shoot 75 to 80 pages of script every time we were there. And just so you know, on the network, it's 12 to 15 pages of script. So they were doing rewrites, and we were posting the script in front of us where the camera couldn't catch us because there was no way even someone who was good and I was fair Mm -hmm. could keep up and commit that to memory. We just couldn't do it. And so we would shoot for 24 hours. I'd be on the set at 6 a.m. for hair and makeup, and I would get off the set at 6 or 7 a.m. the next morning and we'd shoot 70, 75 pages of script. And then, so
2: you weren't in a union or anything that prevented that?
1: No, unions don't prevent that. Unions okay. just make sure that you're paid. And we were paid. We weren't well paid, but we were paid scale, which was fine. And it was fun to do. I mean, it was very grueling, and we complained a lot. And then afterwards, we said, you know, what are you doing? We're doing something that very few people ever have the opportunity of doing. Mm-hmm. So we just had a good time and enjoyed it, did the best we could. What ultimately killed us was how low budget we were because we started doing a great job. We were probably 90% of network quality when we died. Before that, when we started, we were maybe 30%. Mm-hmm. When we showed we could do almost what the network does at a fraction of the cost, it, Procter & Gamble, who was our main sponsor, said, Thank you very much. We're going to stick with New York and L.A. And So we, we died a happy death but we weren't happy about it.
2: So explain that. So they decided to pull out because you guys are doing a good job?
1: Basically, yes, because the soap operas in New York and in L.A., and, of course, in those days, soap operas were abundant. The producers and directors of the soaps in L.A. and New York were complaining that they needed their budgets increased, and P&G kept saying, you need to have your budgets decrease, look what the Catlins is doing. Mm -hmm. So ultimately, it got to be a point where we were just small potatoes, and they killed us to get rid of the the animosity. Okay, wow.
2: So how was that practicing while you were on a soap opera? Did your clients recognize you?
1: Many of them did, and it was kind of fun. Being high profile is both the best and the worst of all worlds because they were those clients who say, oh, that's my lawyer. Or I'm going to go to that lawyer. And there are others that say, well, if my lawyer is doing this, I, I I can't have him as my lawyer. I'll go to somebody else. But, yeah, we were very well recognized. Because it was on Turner, we were actually broadcast not once but twice a day. You know, we were a cheap investment.
2: You know, that's an interesting thing about the high profile piece. I was on a panel some time ago with Judge Hatchett, and it was on lawyers on television. And she mentioned being on television and how sometimes people didn't want to come see somebody they saw on television. And I said, maybe it's because they think you're too expensive because they see you on television. Do you find that people think that maybe you're out of their
1: reach? I think there are those that do. I think there are those that think that, yeah, you're on TV, so you're too expensive. But I think some people love to have a lawyer, whoever he or she is, that's on TV. Mm. And others don't. It's personal preference.
2: So now tell me about your current practice. I know you do some entertainment and some criminal, but what exactly does your current practice consist of?
1: It's probably 65%, 70% entertainment and 30 or 35% criminal defense. And how and often?
2: I'm, go ahead. Um,
1: Entertainment-wise, we represent some on-camera people. I represent Jim Cantori from the Weather Channel, And Jen Carfagno from the Weather Channel and on Fox 5, I represent David Chanley, who's the chief meteorologist, and Tom Haynes, who's the 11 p.m. anchor. Those are some of my best. And we have a fun time. And then we do transactional work. We represent a couple of production companies and talent that come in several times a year. We will have someone call and say, my daughter or son has this modeling contract. Will you look at it? and we do and we usually tell them the same thing it's very one sided mm-hmm. but if you want to get involved in it just tell her or him that's what they got to do got it
2: so what does it mean to be an entertainment lawyer because i know a lot of people particularly in the atlanta area want to go into entertainment law but it's a a large area
1: well I like to tell people that I'm an entertainment lawyer and oftentimes entertaining because <laughs> the law is the same. A contract is a contract. Uh, a tort is a tort. But what's different is that the way people think, and you have to know what to look for in a contract, and you have to realize that unlike in other parts of the law, many of your clients are not sophisticated So you have to take pains to both explain what the contract has to say or the agreement and also try to dumb it down from time to time. And I don't mean that as saying that the client's dumb, but if you're not a sophisticated person and you haven't dealt with lawyers in the law a lot, then there are certain terms of art, there's certain terminology that can be very tricky and could end up biting you because invariably we have people that call us especially music clients or would-be clients. We don't really need a contract. And can you represent the whole group? And the answer is we can represent the group, but we cannot represent everybody in the group because there are probable conflicts from time to time because the recording artist is certainly the person who should have star billing, or is it the person who writes the lyrics Or is it the person who does the choreography? Or so everybody, when there is no money, ends up saying we don't care. We just want to do this for the love of what we do. And then once there's money, there's a big fight, and there's a fight because they don't deal with it beforehand. I also do mediation, and I do entertainment mediation, and I represented. I didn't represent him. I did a mediation for Lip Biscuit several years ago. Spent 10 or 11 hours holed up at the airport, I think it was a Clarion Inn in Jacksonville, where Limp Biscuit was one of those garage bands that was worth nothing until they were. Mm -hmm. And two of the guys said, goodbye, I'm leaving. And then when Limp Biscuit made money, they said, wait a minute, we were here at the beginning. We, We need some money. So one of them did not have a lawyer, and they sued their old group. And I think they got something like around two or three thousand dollars. The other one had a lawyer, and that person got something because I mediated it in the six figures. Well,
2: page, you
1: have a lawyer? Well, I think it does, but not always. I mean, there are times when you represent an on-camera person, especially in the smaller market, where there's only so much that the station can offer, and I don't care how good this person may be they're not going to offer anymore, And you try, and sometimes you have success, but other times they say, thank you very much. You and your client take this, or we'll find somebody else. Yeah.
2: So one thing you hear about a great deal in entertainment, particularly in, in music, is artists getting taken advantage of, and you kind of alluded to that. What are some of the common things that happen where the artist is taken advantage of, or at least feels like he or she is taken advantage of?
1: I think that the artist who feels taken advantage of or the artist who has been taken advantage of, in the beginning, he or she is so into their music. They, I just want to get this out there. And they tend to sign deals that are horrible for them if they make it. Now, keeping in mind, most artists never make it, so you never know how bad the deal is. Hmm. But after they make it and they see that they've, they're stuck with all of these percentages that are not good for them, then they complain. Now, the truth is they should go to a lawyer in the beginning, but I can talk about that. We could put it on billboards. We could use all sorts of social media, but people still ignore it because it's my music that I want to get out there until there's money involved and I want money, but I've just signed my rights away. I mean, that goes on forever. It's never going to be perfect, but the more sophisticated the client when I say sophisticated, I mean knowledgeable. That mm-hmm. hey, I really do need a lawyer. You know, I need somebody at least to take a look at this and pay them. And so many people, Kimberly, when it comes to especially music, say, "Oh, you know, I'll pay you later," but later never comes. So mm-hmm. they end up either getting no lawyer or having bad advice from a lawyer that doesn't know the biz.
2: So you mentioned about people who are going to work with a station, and the station only has but so much money. So does that happen in music? Does the artist in the beginning stages really have that much negotiating power where they can ask for changes to their contracts?
1: You can ask, but you hit it. There's Negotiating power is all about leverage. So what do you do if you want to jump in as a recording artist? You accept the fact that you're not going to win the first time out. Winning is publishing a record, putting out a record. Of course, mm-hmm. we still talk about records, even though records don't exist. But the deal there is is to keep it very short term, or to have terminology in there that once you hit such and such a level that the money goes up. You're better off, frankly, keeping it very, very brief, very short.
2: It's like a one album type of deal or something like that.
1: Yeah, absolutely.
2: So you said you also do criminal law. Now, what happens, or what are some of the times when the entertainment, and the criminal practice crossed paths.
1: It has happened more times than I care to admit. <laughs> Years ago, we represented Lisa Lopez with TLC when she had criminal problems, charged with burning her boyfriend's house down, who used to play was a wide receiver for the Atlanta Falcons. I represented Axel Rose when he got busted here in Atlanta for possession of weed, I represented Kid Rock, when he had his problems at the Waffle House. I've represented Neo when he was exceeding the speed limit significantly on 285 late at night, early in the morning. And numerous others. I've represented clients in Clayton County who were being stalked. Oh, wow. And so we had to get this woman off their back. And I think we did.
2: So is it more complicated when you're representing an artist in a criminal matter?
1: If he or she is a high-profile artist, absolutely more complicated because there are those that see this artist and just want to touch her or him and say, oh, my gosh, can you believe who this is? This is fabulous, unbelievable. And then there are those that say, I put my pants on the same way he does. She's no cooler than I am. She's just lucky. And so you don't know. You have to be very flexible and malleable Because depending on who you're coming up against, as a defense lawyer, you have to deal with the prosecutor, either for a misdemeanor or a felony, and you have to deal with the judge. And you've got to have a pretty good pulse to know how that judge or how that prosecutor thinks and why they think the way they do. Sometimes you have to really work hard to turn them around. Other times, I mean, just delighted. I represented, oh, gosh. On a DUI from Alabama. I can't remember. He's the last living member of Leonard Skinner. I think he was the last one. And he got a DUI. And I went to court, and the clerk looked at the prosecutor and said, You better give him a great deal, or I'm not going to work here anymore.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: <laughs> That's pretty rare. But it's certainly accepted and graciously accepted because when you're representing someone in a criminal case, normally you're on the bottom looking up, 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 peering up, praying you can get up. Yeah, absolutely.
2: Well, I know you've been in Georgia for a long time and spent some time in Florida. And generally speaking, Georgia has not been considered to be an entertainment mecca but that's changing. How have you seen the entertainment industry change over time in this area?
1: Because of the tax credits, the film industry has not gotten better. It has exploded in such a way that I don't think anyone could envision things happening. Happening. We're shooting 45, 50 projects a month at any given month. There was a time when I was in the early days of acting here in Atlanta when we were lucky to get an audition or two every two or three weeks. Forget doing a gig. We just didn't get it. There was nothing shot here. It was what we finally had in the heat of the night, the episodic TV series. It was fabulous because actors got to work, and they got to work a lot. Not a lot of actors, but a nice amount. So it's kind of a weird thing here. Mm -hmm. Now... Thanks to the tax credits, it has exploded. And Florida killed their tax credits. North Carolina killed theirs. Louisiana dampened theirs. And let's face it, the difference, if you're doing an outtake of western North Carolina and north Georgia, the mountain trees look the same. There's no difference between Savannah, Georgia, and Charleston, South Carolina. They look the same. And the panhandle of Florida, not much different from South Georgia. So they go where the money is best. And it's a money, money-making money affair, and that's what they want. Wow.
2: Well, can you tell us a little bit about your conferences that you do? For oh, sure. For people who are interested, interested in
1: entertainment law? Sure. We do an entertainment sports and IP conference every year. We actually do a ski CLE, which is very, very small. We maybe have 20 people at the ski CLE. But the Entertainment Sports Law Conference and IP it happens usually the second weekend in November. And we're always offshore. Last year, for instance, we were to be in San Juan at the Ritz. Oh. Something called a hurricane came to visit. And... <laughs> We were able to move the conference to Jamaica, to the Hyatt. But we try to do it, it started back in the 80s when I used to go to New York, go to PLI, the Practicing Law Institute Conference. And I think in those days, the tuition was around $750 for three days. And you had to fly up there. And, of course, you had to find a place to stay. And then you had to go out to dinner somewhere. Never a bad thing going to dinner in New York. But it was very expensive, and if Kimberly was speaking, as an example, and I really resonated with what you had to say, I'd want to talk to you when you finished your panel. Where's Kimberly, you ask, and they said, oh, she had to go back to her office. And so I realized that was happening all too often, and I thought I could start something better, less expensive, in a place where people would congregate. And when they were done with their panel, you could stand there and sit there and have lunch or have a drink with them, and it would be terrific. Great. So, So,
2: are you still doing it?
1: So, we started in 1987. We went to Jamaica to a place called Hedonism 2. Yes, you heard me right. Yeah, I heard of
2: that place. (laughs) There
1: were 12 people total, including spouses and main squeezes. And Hedonism too did not have any meeting rooms, and we had no history, no sponsors, and no underwriters. So we went to their disco where we had our meetings, and they were delighted to have us because, quite frankly, we legitimized the place. We did that in 1987, skipped a year, 1989, we went back to Hedonism, and then we skipped another year, went to Acapulco. We had about 52 people there, and ever since, we've done it every year. And we have a blast. People are delighted to have us there because we're at a time of year when there isn't a lot going on. And our business is pretty darn important.
2: So where is it going to be this year?
1: This year will be at the Westin Resort in Grand Cayman, November 7 through 11. Nice. And we'll, we'll probably have 250 people there. Wow. That's a lot of people.
2: And there's time for everybody to, to talk and ask questions. If someone says, there's Daryl Cohen, I've heard about him, heard him on Southern Lawyer, I want to have a conversation with him, they can just come right up to you and engage you.
1: And that's the beauty of our conference, because we're offshore, and we're all pretty much huddled together, that if somebody wanted to talk to me and I'd go leave the panel he or she can come right up and say, hey, let's talk. And I'll say, well, can we wait five minutes? Let's go have lunch or go by the pool or go to the ocean. And it's a very idyllic setting for the type of communication that you want in a conference. And we've got people coming from all over the world, Brazil, China, Argentina, mostly United States. And from here, we have our largest contingents from Georgia, a large one from Florida, California, Tennessee, mostly Nashville, New York, Chicago. is just amazing the people that go. And once they go, they always come back. They consider it just a big family. Nice. And we encourage that.
2: Well, Gerald, thank you so much for being on today. I really appreciate your time. I know you're very busy. So I just want to thank you for your time and hopefully encourage people to come out to your conference. And do you have a website that you like people to visit?
1: North American Entertainment Sports Law Summit or just the North American Summit is where the conference, they can find it. And
2: what if they're looking for you for representation?
1: Then they can just call me. They can Google me. They can go to com. I think. I'm fairly easy to find, for better are, or worse. You are easy to
2: find <laughs> and very accessible. So thanks again, Daryl. I really appreciate it.
1: Thank you. Take care and have a wonderful weekend.
2: You too. Take care. Bye-bye.
0: Bye. I want to thank Daryl for coming on the show today. He's such a great person. He has so much experience and more importantly, has such a great heart. You know, I noticed that I'm always saying that people on Southern lawyer are my good friends, but I promise you one of the best things about doing this show so far is being able to talk to people that I like and respect. And I'm telling you what Daryl says about his accessibility at conferences is true. I remember being at an entertainment conference in New Orleans. It was the first one I had been to and I knew no one. But Daryl, true to form, was so ingratiating. He invited me to all the lunches and included me with all of his long-term entertainment cronies and just made sure that I felt like I belonged. And so if you run across him at any conference, please, I encourage you to go talk to him. You'll make a friend and it'll be a really good friend. But with that, I invite you all to continue to listen to Southern Lawyer, but also feel free to send suggestions and comments. You can do that at info at org. That's info at org. Also, check out our articles and newsletters online at southernlawyer.org. Again, I'm Kimberly Peyton jones and I want to thank you for listening to Southern Lawyer, where we bring you real stories from real lawyers.